Welcome to Success Stories, the podcast where outstanding women share their journey to leadership, the personal habits that have helped them succeed, and the projects they're passionate about. Join me, your host, Catherine Robson, as we redefine what success looks like. Clara Brenner is co-founder and managing partner of the Urban Innovation Fund, a San Francisco-based venture capital firm that invests in transformative urban technology. The fund provides seed capital and other support to entrepreneurs solving tough urban challenges like water management, sustainable transportation and inner-city housing. The fund aims to make cities better places to live and to help create tomorrow's most valued companies. Clara has been named by Forbes as one of its 30 under 30 for social entrepreneurship. She earned an MBA from MIT Sloan and graduated magna cum laude from her BA class at NYU. Clara, great to see you. Nice to see you. So can you explain the work that you do here at the Urban Innovation Fund? Sure. So uh, the Urban Innovation Fund is a venture capital firm. Uh, we provide seed capital, but also regulatory support to startups that are shaping the future of cities. And so how did you manage to find yourself an urban innovator, given that history seemed to be your primary focus when you were <laughs> at, at college? I've always been interested in cities and how cities work. Um, and in college, I did study history, but I actually wrote my uh, sort of graduating thesis on the historical relationship between real estate developers and city officials and how that shaped uh, what Manhattan looks like today. Um, and really, for me, it was an exercise in trying to figure out, did I want to go into government or did I want to go work for a real estate developer? And ultimately, it seemed like developers had a lot more freedom and flexibility. And um, so for me, that was sort of the path that I took after graduating from college. So I went to work for a developer in 2007, which is not exactly the best time <laughs> to enter the real estate space. Um, but I had a great time. And uh, for me, it was just uh, a great opportunity to see firsthand how you know one business could impact the community around them. Um, and I, I loved it, um, but I also really figured out that for myself, I, I didn't want to have a boss. I, I wanted to start my own firm, um, but I didn't feel like with my history degree, I had the technical skills necessary to really feel confident enough to, to branch out on my own. So I went to business school. So you went to MIT? I did. And did um, an MBA? I did, and it was a really great experience. Um, but was while, it a very competitive environment? <laughs> actually, no. I think that was one of the reasons I was really attracted to MIT Sloan. I think it's a really friendly, kind of nerdy environment. A lot of people from non-traditional backgrounds and also a lot of people from engineering backgrounds who are... Um, really open to collaboration. And so for me, it was a really friendly environment and um, I, I loved it. Um, and between my first and second year, I ended up getting uh, an internship at a firm that's now called Fundrise. So they became quite a successful startup. It's essentially a real estate startup that crowdfunds dollars from the community to invest in institutional real estate within that community. Um, and the firm went on to raise about $50 million. They've launched a series of e-REITs here in the US. And so what are they? So a REIT is a real estate investment trust where essentially they aggregate capital um, historically from accredited investors to invest in a pool of real estate assets. Um, it's a really stable, typically, investment vehicle, um, and there's a lot of potential for upside, but it's really uh, an investment vehicle that's not 
usually open to regular folks like you and me. Um, and the idea with Fundrise was to help unaccredited investors by taking advantage of... So uh, by accredited, you mean um, investors that have a certain amount of income Correct. or assets so that they qualify to be exempt from the consumer investor legislation. Correct. And so we were really focused on consumer, regular consumer retail investors. Um, and it was just awesome. It was a really great experience. It was really cool to see how one company, again, could activate so many people to invest in their communities. Um, and I just, it was a really transformative experience. And when I came back to school, I ended up talking to my good friend, Julie, uh, who was also at Sloan with me. Um, and she had had a similarly transformative experience working for a company, uh, what was then a startup, I don't think you can call it a startup now, called Revolution Foods. Um, they're a healthy school meal provider. Um, they're truly a unique, amazing business. And um, they've since gone on to to, I think they do 200 million in annual revenue now, so they're they're quite large. But at the time, they were much smaller, and this was like when Lyft and Uber were just getting off the ground, and Airbnb, and we felt like all of these companies had something in common. Um, I don't think they would necessarily self-identify as social impact companies, but they were all solving really interesting community challenges, and at the same time scaling in ways that traditional community organizations don't tend to do. And we were just wondering why all of our awesome, thoughtful, engaged peers at school all seem to be starting the same companies over and over again, you know, photo sharing, dating app type companies, and not nobody seemed to want to start the next Revolution Foods. Not that there's anything wrong with dating apps or, or photo sharing apps. I, ha I have many, many, many photo sharing apps on my phone, uh, and I love them all. But um, it was just interesting that people seemed to think that there was a lot of opportunity in certain spaces and not any of the spaces that she and I cared about. Um, so we ended up doing a research study, kind of harnessing her brain power, since Julie used to be a political pollster in a previous life. Um, and what we found is that uh, these urban entrepreneurs, so that's what we started calling them, we kind of made up that term, these companies that were solving those sort of core urban challenges and scaling city by city, uh, we found that regardless of their industry vertical, they had a lot of things in common, um, two primary things, in fact. So the first was it's really hard to raise early stage capital in that space. A lot of these companies have a physical component. So, you know, if you're Revolution Foods, you need a physical culinary center to produce those meals. Or if you're a bike share system, you need a fleet of bikes from day one. Um, or maybe you're working in some kind of new economy or sharing economy type space, in which case more institutional investors just want to see that you have a lot of traction before they're going to take a risk on you. So that sort of getting off the ground part can be particularly tricky. Um, so that was sort of challenge number one. Challenge number two was that these companies all face pretty significant regulatory and political hurdles as they look to scale. So, you know, if you're that bike share system, you need public space permits. If you're Revolution Foods, you're selling into highly regulated school districts. Um, if you're a Lyft, you're like breaking every law known to man. Um, and there's just a certain level to which you have to engage in order to be successful because, you know, even scaling from San Francisco going across the bridge to Oakland, it's an entirely different regulatory system, let alone going to Melbourne. Um, and so, um, as we surveyed the investor landscape, we felt pretty strongly that there were no investors out there kind of um, 
investing in the space in a concerted manner, and they certainly weren't giving these companies good regulatory and political advice, as is evidenced by the news every day. Um, and so we ended up taking our research to Blackstone, the private equity firm, um, and basically saying we think there would be some value to creating a showcase investment portfolio with all startups doing good things for the community while also and, pursuing market rate return. And they're all companies that are looking to, they're for-profit companies, they're not charities. Correct. The idea being like, you know, could we build a portfolio of highly scalable businesses that were attacking really core community challenges um, while also not necessarily having to rely on philanthropic capital for their their ongoing success. Um, and yeah, so that's what we, we did. We created an accelerator called Tumble. Um, we incubated 38 companies out of uh, the accelerator. Um, these are companies like Chariot, which is a commuter shuttle that crowdsources its routes from the community. Uh, they were acquired less than two years after our initial investment by Ford Motor Company to build out their new smart mobility business line, which was really great. Um, and so they're expanding to cities across the U.S. I believe they're just announced that they're going to London next, which will be pretty cool. Um, and what else? We invested in a company called Neighborly, which is a crowd investing platform for municipal bonds. Um, they recently announced a $25 million Series A, so they're going gangbusters also. So um, Series A is an institutional fundraising round that comes after the f- sort of friends and family and bootstrapping and after seed capital, and it's the first sort of institutional investment. Is that right? Historically, yes. I think Seed has become the new Series A, so you're seeing a lot of institutional players like our new firm uh, playing in that space. But yes, Series A is sort of like the large capital infusion that hopefully gets the company to to real scale um, once they've sort of proven product market fit and things like that. And so you've gone on to then launch your own venture capital firm. Why did you do that? Well, the showcase portfolio and the accelerator did really well, um, both from a financial perspective. So we've had, you know, some real exits and, and real markups, which has been pretty fantastic. And that's provided a return for Blackstone and their original... So our entity was structured as an evergreen fund. So um, we took in capital from partners who kind of believed in our thesis and weren't expecting anything back. Um, the idea being if we had a great exit like Chariot, we could you know cycle that money back out to either support more entrepreneurs or support events in the community or education that kind of buttressed our thesis. Um, but what we found was, you know, one, our companies did quite well, and two, we were having a really quantifiable impact. So, um, you know, these companies were, you know, helping people carpool instead of uh, drive independently to work or drive capital towards really meaningful infrastructure improvements. But also, um, 76% of the companies we invested in have a woman or person of color on the founding team, which is extremely, extremely unusual. Um, And what we found was it was just really hard to support these businesses over time. Like we'd structured the Evergreen Fund essentially to seed the market, not to follow along or take board seats or um, be an activist investor. And um, it really hampered our ability to support the businesses and to sort of to the the level that we were hoping to do. Um, And it was also really challenging, frankly, to find ongoing supporters who wanted to fund the entrepreneurs year over year. It's not really typical of, of sort of accelerator funding. And um, so what we ended up doing was sort of deciding that Tumble would, we would treat Tumble like a deployed fund. So we're not investing in any more companies through that entity. We focus on more traditional community organizing now. So we host events and thought leadership and we, we write articles and, you know, do the kind of 
background thought leadership that we think is really important to support the space. And then all of our new investment comes out of a much more flexible vehicle that we've created called the Urban Innovation Fund. So it's a very traditional vanilla venture capital firm. Um, we typically write checks somewhere between 100 and 500K initially to companies. Um, we launched that fund this past year. Um, and let's see, we've made 10 investments so far. We'll probably make 25 out of the current fund. And so raising capital for the fund, how is that? Fundraising is never fun. <laughs> There's no, and no never fun easy. You shouldn't feel bad if it's not easy. <laughs> um, but I think we were really lucky in that um, we had a real track record to go on. And so unlike most, most uh, sort of first-time traditional funds, you see mostly um, – backed by high net worth individuals uh, and friends and family. And we certainly had that, but most of our funders are institutional funders. So hospital systems, large foundations who I would describe as impact curious. So, you know, they're pursuing market rate returns, they're investing out of their endowments, but they're looking to start aligning some of their investment work more closely with their um, organizational objectives, let's say. And that obviously aligns really perfectly with Julie and my thesis around urban innovation. And we had the track record to kind of excite them. Um, and so that's been really um, lucky, I think, for us. We were really relieved <laughs> that people seem to understand uh, our story. Um, but yeah, fundraising is never is never super fun. But does it help your companies because you've had that relatively recent experience in, in building a fund yourself and having to pitch well? And, and how do you then pass on that um, knowledge to, to the companies that you want to invest in? Sure. I mean, we think of ourselves as entrepreneurs very much. Uh, we try to be scrappy. We, we understand the challenges of fundraising and telling your story and pulling together pitch deck and financials and things like that. I think it's made us a lot more sympathetic to entrepreneurs and what they go through. At the same time, you know, it's interesting when we first launched the fund, we sat down and we sort of said, oh, you know, we're going to not treat people the way we were treated. Not, I mean, we had many people who treated us extremely well, but there are, you know, during the fundraising process, you, you, you go through ups and downs and experience all kinds of crazy people. And we just said, you know, we're going to be transparent. We're going to be available. We're going to be responsive. Um, you know, we, we just want to have entrepreneurs have the experience that we wished we'd had consistently in terms of our fundraising. And um, what we found was we were too responsive. Uh, just more like we, you know, I have a rule that I clean my inbox up by the end of the day. Like everyone on our team, we're extremely like, if you send us an email, I promise you we've read it. Whether we've responded to it or not is a different question. Um, but what we found was we had to kind of slow our role because um, as much as we thought entrepreneurs would appreciate our transparency, they don't. In fact, um, you know, as much as entrepreneurs are trying to sell you, you are also trying to sell entrepreneurs on doing business with you. And so, um, maintaining a level of mystique by sort of not responding necessarily immediately all the time was a, a great learning lesson for us that, you know, as much as we, we are entrepreneurs and we want to be, you know, hungry and on it, we have to sort of, we have a rule now, we sort of once a week, we follow up with entrepreneurs <laughs> because, um, we want them to, to, um, to want us as much as we want them. Um, you've given great advice to your entrepreneurs about, you know, what should be in their pitch deck and how they should pitch and, and then also how they should communicate with their investors on an ongoing basis. What sort of advice do you give in those two areas? For entrepreneurs, I would say responsiveness is better. Um, so uh, it's interesting how many entrepreneurs don't follow up with little things like thank you notes or when you ask for follow-up information, it takes them a couple of days to pull it together. Those are just really bad signs. And, and frankly, you know, 
investors, not just our firm, but generally have so many deals to look at that I don't think entrepreneurs necessarily appreciate how short their attention span is. Um, and internally, we have a rule that, you know, let's say um, we have a second meeting, it's sort of gotten more serious in terms of um, our evaluation process, until we get a thank you note or a follow-up note from the entrepreneurs, we don't start the diligence process just because we don't want to waste our time with an entrepreneur who doesn't want to work with us or isn't serious. And, um, you know, it's just a great, unfortunately, you know, signal <laughs> about commitment. And so, you know, we try to remind our entrepreneurs all the time, you know, better to be over overly available than under available, um, which is obviously advice that we don't follow ourselves all the time. But um, I think it's, it's really, really important. Um, and just generally communicating with investors, both before they commit and after, you know, things like writing investor update emails and things like that. Yeah, and I thought that was interesting. You've provided some commentary around monthly standard updates where you're giving your investors a monthly snapshot of comparables month over month over month. And it seems like that's not only of benefit to your investors, but also of benefit to you as an entrepreneur. Why is that? Just being held accountable. I know that, you know, entrepreneurs have the hardest job in the world. And, you know, they're, you know, if we've invested in a company, it's because we have faith in the founders to do the right thing. But um, just having some level of accountability or an opportunity to step back once a month and kind of survey the landscape and say, you know, where are we right now? And how does that compare with last month, say, or two months ago or six months ago, I think is a really valuable process and I think many entrepreneurs don't do it and it's to their to their detriment you know it's, it's easy for things to get away from you they get away from us you know they get away from every human um, you know your head's down in the weeds and you don't necessarily see what's going on around you or industry trends what's happening to a client whatever it might be and so you know we we do it you know we send out regular updates to our investors um, and we did that at Tumble as well and, and it's certainly you know medicine that we take and we we encourage our entrepreneurs to do as well. Have there been any setbacks along the way in in these two ventures or or prior to that that you've really learned a lot from? I mean, I think a, a huge lesson was going through the the experience of the financial downturn while working in real estate. I mean, I went to go work for a development firm after school um that, you know, at the start was just, you know, through like the most elaborate holiday party I've ever been to before or since, you know, just truly out, outlandish. And it had this huge fancy office building. And um, within four months of me starting, their team had cut in half, you know, they fired half the firm. And um, luckily, I wasn't one of them. But it was it was just a truly jarring experience to sort of recognize that, you know, a lot of the the fancy trappings around a business are not indicative of the quality of that business or the um, state of the market. And so I think it instilled really early in me. And I think Julie had a similar experience that um, we want to be frugal. We want to be scrappy. Even if things are going really well, you know, you never know what's going to happen next. Even if you have the best business in the world, um, being prepared for what might happen is really important. And that was certainly a, a very memorable experience for me. And to that point, there's a lot of conjecture from the outside that there's a tech bubble developing again, particularly here in Silicon Valley. What's your view on that? I think there certainly is an overinflation in terms of value, especially for businesses here in the Bay Area. It's amazing what companies with no traction and hardly any team think that they're worth these days. Um, that said, I definitely think it's getting better than it was even just a year ago. I think there is some um, 
pushback that investors are starting to place on entrepreneurs in terms of expectations about traction and performance. Um, not to say that if you if you don't have those, I mean, if you if you can demonstrate real success, like you can commend some pretty um, astounding valuations. But I do see investors more skeptical, and I think part of that is, and it's certainly bearing itself out in the numbers. I mean, you see that fewer deals are getting done now than even just a few years ago. Although at the same time, the size of those deals is is growing pretty tremendously. I, but I do think that that's representative of a, of a mind shift from investors who recognize they have more deals than ever to look at. They can be extremely choosy. And so I do think you know a lot of investors are finding real value because there is such excitement around the entrepreneurship space right now, especially here in Silicon Valley. But yeah, there are still some really bananas numbers that we see on a regular basis. And it's just, you know, I can't believe someone said that with a straight face, like you're worth what? Um, but that's fine. You know, we don't have to invest in them and that's on us to be, you know, responsible fiduciaries. And what about living here in the Bay area? So you, um, didn't grow up here, right? as you say, maybe we've come off the top, but it's still a pretty buoyant environment. What's it like personally to and be building a business in this environment and, and to be living as a human being in this environment. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I mean, I grew up on the East Coast of the U.S., and um, that certainly is a very different environment. I also really loved living there. Um, but San Francisco is just a one-of-a-kind place, and it has such an amazing history. Um, I love history, and so, you know, being able to explore a place that's got such a wild, uh, been through so much, um, is really exciting. And, and certainly, like, there's there's such a culture of business and entrepreneurship here that's it's pretty infectious that I, I love it and certainly um you know it is it is certainly a very expensive place to live um at the same time i think there are things you can accomplish here as an entrepreneur that you you can't accomplish anywhere else um or it would be challenging to accomplish elsewhere and there seems to be a real focus on health and wellness in this community how do you embrace that in your life it's easy to, to be healthy, I think, here in the Bay Area. There's so much fresh produce. There's so many opportunities to go hiking and biking and horseback riding and swimming and anything else, you skiing, whatever you want to do. And so I think um, there's a great culture here that appreciates free time. And, um, you know, it's I think it's interesting. And it's not one of those like, oh, you know, I'm bragging that I stayed into the office until 1 in the morning. It's like, no, I'm bragging that I got out by 7 and I got to Tahoe and I, you know, went skiing all weekend. And I think there is a, an appreciation for work-life balance that is really great here. And in terms of resources that have been really helpful for you along the journey, so books, for example, what are some of the books that, that you've really loved and that you would recommend to other people? The book that I've been recommending the most is actually not a business book, but, well, I guess there are two books. One is a book called Season of the Witch, um, which is about San Francisco in the sort of late 60s, 70s, early 80s, and I think explains a lot about why our city is the way it is, and there are obviously so many new people coming who just sort of are... Um, baffled by the way things operate here, whether it's the way business works or politics, and, and I think it's a really great primer. Um, but also, and is that part of the One City One Book program? It is. It is. So and can you explain that? So it's it's basically the the city of San Francisco. The, the library recommends a book for the entire city to to read, and I think they they do this in cities around the world. And that was the book I want to say last year, and. Uh, it's a great book. I, I don't always agree with um, the author's politics, but I, I do think it's an excellent book. Um, and then the other book that I, I find myself recommending a lot is um, Ellen Powell's Reset. It is not an easy book to get through, but I think it does um, a great job of capturing sort of the 
mounting indignities that so many people, women, people of color, um, LGBT people experience oftentimes in business. And yeah, it's not an easy read, but I think it's a really important read. Like I would say anyone that works in an office should read this book. I've read somewhere that if you could only pitch to one person, it would be Michael Bloomberg. (laughs) Why is that? I don't know if I remember saying that, but I, I am a huge fan of, of Michael Bloomberg. I think he's done an amazing job of marrying his interest in and skills in business and politics and community development and um, his ability to sort of rise above regional politics to sort of have a vision for what um, the cities of the future might look like is certainly really inspiring for, for me and I know for Julie as well. Any other heroes for you? Right now, I would say Ellen Powell is, is it for me. I, I think she's just a really brave person who I see on the street every once in a while, and I always want to sort of rush up and, and hug her, but I, I also want to respect her privacy. <laughs> so I, I try to, I have not done that yet, but I think that um, she's just uh, set the stage for so much of the conversation that's happening right now nationally and not just in, in sort of land of startups, but in entertainment and uh, news media and, and it's, I think that she was sort of ahead of her time. And when you think about being an investor, which clearly you've got a good track record now, what are the, the quintessential things you think you need to be a good investor? I think you need a good business partner. Um, I think no matter what your skills are, having someone who can complement those skills is extremely important. And um, while Julie and I have sort of similar backgrounds, um, you know, we're both like, and people mistake us all the time, even though I don't think we look alike, but we both are sort of like pale, brown haired Jews from the East Coast, you know, like, <laughs> and we went to the same school. But, you know, we have very complementary work styles. She's, she and I are very different in, in that way. And um, I, I know I'm, I'm much better. And, and even if you're, you're like the most competent person in the world, you know, there are days when you are, are not performing and, and having someone who can kind of, um, pick up the slack is really important. And final question, when you look forward, you know, what are the things that um, you're really excited about in the future? Well, I'm biased. I'm obviously very excited about the Urban Innovation Fund. You know, this is our first year in, in business, and I just, I'm so excited to work with Julie for the next 40 years. And so, you know, I'm excited about the next 10 companies that we invest in. We actually, so we've invested in 10 so far. We actually just made our 11th investment, but we haven't announced it yet. So I'm excited about announcing that 11th investment. And they're across a whole range of really interesting spaces. I know there's an interesting water company, Water Analytics. A ton of different industry verticals. So we invested in a company called Apana, for example. They're a hardware software solution for large commercial and industrial customers who have big water bills. So Costco, for example, is one of their, their big customers. They helped Costco reduce their water use by 23% last year, which is pretty remarkable. Um, but also BookNook, which is a, a software platform for schools. Their initial target market is elementary schools, um, and they help children improve their reading skills. And um, they are now in schools across the U.S. They just announced a statewide partnership with the state of Kansas. Um, so again, like kind of running the gamut in terms of industry vertical, but all tackling those core urban challenges that you know affect communities across the country and and beyond. Well, it seems like a really exciting time for you personally and for the fund and um, looking forward to hearing more about your successes and thank you so much for sharing your experience. Thank you for having me. Every week I find a nugget of gold in each discussion, something I want to take away and implement in my own life. If you feel the same, I'd love to know how my guests touch your lives. You can leave a review on iTunes or get in touch on LinkedIn or Twitter. 
Thanks to the awesome Buffy Gorilla for production, Alicia Piper for her fantastic writing, and to Broke Free, who wrote and performed our theme music. See you next week.